Hi, I'm Amelia Bordeaux. I am the host of Clarity with Diamond Standard. This is a podcast that talks about financial market themes that impact the diamond commodity and the wider precious metals market. I am joined today by Bill Kelly, President and CEO of Kaya Association. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Amelia. Great to be on. Thank you. We appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. I thought just to start off, um, could you tell us just a bit about Kaya and your role there? Sure. So uh, the Kaya Association is now uh, entering our third decade. So we're about uh, 21 years old. I've been in this role about uh, just not quite 10 years. Uh, um, we'll talk more about this, but uh, in many ways, the best job I've ever had because I'm really in the position of being an advocate for the end investor, better outcomes around transparency and education, which really gets down to Kaya's platform. So we started a little over 20 years ago uh, to fill a need, which was the endowment model is substantially older than this, but the institutional adoption of alternatives, and we could talk about definitions, but institutional quality means the private markets top to bottom, uh, including private equity, venture, real estate, infrastructure, farmland, certainly commodities, Jermaine, Amelia, to your, uh, to your day job, uh, right. but then also uh, hedge funds and, and CTAs, which covers uh, commodities as well, but then the tradable strategies. And, and how should an allocator think about getting these types of investments into a portfolio? So we have a, a two-part exam uh, if you pass both parts, which we now have 13,000 members that have done that in over 100 different countries. And oh, as wow. we think about this trend toward democratization, we now have uh, over 6,000 people sitting for the exam annually. So I think we're standing in a very interesting spot where the 60-40 is not doing it for the end investor to some degree. Right. And, and I think we're trying to stand there saying, yes, more diversification, but it's got to be done through the lens of transparency and education. Right. Uh, that's so interesting. So I have just come back from a couple of alt um, conferences. I'm sure you're aware of like the big eye connections one that was in Miami and um, it was just absolutely packed. I mean, it's so popular. I, my background, I come from the macro world and over the last, you know, three years, there's certainly been a lot of attention with all the geopolitical risk on, on macro, but um, obviously with the 60-40 portfolio not performing, people have moved into alts investing and there seems to be a very heightened um, interest in alts investing. But um, if I look back at assets under management, I, I think they've maybe tripled over uh, the last decade. So they've been steadily increasing to alts investing over the last decade. So how mainstream is it or how important is it um, to a portfolio? It seems to be gaining in importance. Yeah, so I would say uh, under the civil heading of diversification, it is important because if the 60-40 uh, is not doing it for you, that's just two asset classes and three are better than two, four are better than three and, and off we go. But but it's interesting, uh, I was at iConnections and we did not meet there. Uh, and there were plenty of people I knew that I did not see either. It was just- I saw you uh, speak though, I heard you speak. <laughs> okay, good. Well, it was just amazing how many people were there. Yeah. It was just a sea of humanity. And a theme I heard, and you probably did too, is that the 60-40 is dead. And right. I think that that is, uh, at least in my opinion, a dangerous uh, tagline because we're basically saying to so many investors that we used to and grew up with this type of a 60-40 portfolio that mm -hmm. it not only doesn't work, it's dead to me. And, and what does that really mean? And if it means, well, you've got to create this third bucket of appendages called alternative investments, I think we've misjudged uh, uh, the value proposition of diversification. 
And I think a far better discussion is to say, let's start with the 60 bucket. And if that's your equity exposure, are there other ways of getting it in addition to public markets? And you may be better off with the beta there because those markets are so efficient. Could you get some private equity exposure? Could you get some venture exposure? Could you get some uh, hedge fund exposure? And particularly in this market, do you want to hedge some of that equity risk premium through some kind of a, of a hedge fund offering? You can use mm -hmm. commodities to maybe help around that uh, tail risk. And then on the fixed income side, the 40, the home of lending is no longer the, the banks. So we've had another one fail over this uh, past weekend. But after Dodd-Frank, the banks uh, really were pushed out of the lending business and the home of lending now is in the private market. So that's been more of an evolution as opposed to a revolution. So I think we should talk about broader opportunities to diversify versus the old way of investing is dead. And I think that type of a narrative is not only going to be better understood, but uh, more meaningful uh, in so many ways to be an investor. That's a very interesting take. I've, I haven't heard anyone explain it exactly like that. Um, also, it's a very, it's a, it's a broad category. There's a lot of, you mentioned them, there's a lot of categories in all of commodities, private equities, hedge funds. Um, and it's also rapidly evolving. I mean, crypto is included as well. Um, but I've heard you describe it previously on other podcasts as sets of industries. And do you, do you still think that? And are they sets of industries? I think the due diligence process would have to be very, you know, it's always very careful, but I think it would have to be heightened around the specific knowledge of the different industries within alt investing. And how does one go about go about that, having that due diligence, you think? Yeah, so, so a couple of things. One, just uh, I, as a definition, uh, you know, I think depending on who you talk to, the definition of alts can be more narrow or more wide. And you think about diversification uh, and especially democratization with diversification together, it opens up a lot of uh, asset classes or industries, and I'll get into the difference in a moment, that are not institutional quality. It doesn't mean they're of lower quality. But a big public pension plan like, plan like CalPERS does not have uh, the ticket size because they're such a big allocator where they could take an interest in a wine fund or collectibles around baseball cards or race cars or, or even some of the commodity funds around diamonds. They just might not be of the size for a CalPERS. But when it comes to the more retail-oriented investor, the definition all of a sudden gets a lot wider, including uh, uh, virtual currencies as well. And that could be Bitcoin and more broadly speaking around virtual currencies. But the, the concept, and I think this is true, Amelia, for some of these uh, institutional strategies clearly, but also some of the retail strategies as well. I think we have a tendency to talk as if these are asset classes. And if you think about equities, public equities as an example, uh, that's gotten to be a very efficient market. It's very hard to find a manager that's going to beat the index over extended periods of time. Uh, but if you pick the wrong manager, the delta between the index and that manager is going to be fairly tight. But then you move over toward uh, private equity, as an example, or, or hedge funds. The median manager looks like the public market proxy. But then the dispersion of performance results from the median to the top quartile could be separated by thousands of basis points. So it is no longer an asset class. And if you say, well, I'm going to be 15% in hedge funds. Well, with what manager and what strategy? Because unless you can answer both those questions, uh, you could be making a very, very big mistake and you could be buying a levered uh, beta play. So, so due diligence is 
clearly very, very important. And, and as these industries and assets grow, I think this disparity about manager selection and dispersion is just going to get wider and wider. Yeah. One of the questions we get, um, we are working towards and well underway of the financialization of, of the diamond commodity that Diamond Standard and founder Cormac Kinney made. Um, we do want to have futures options and eventually an ETF to, as you mentioned, have that be able to accommodate that large institutional um, allocation. That's what we are working towards. Um, we get a question from investors a lot of the time, and this is very specific to ALT, is around the liquidity of an ALT investment. Um, and ALT investments are are longer term. I, they're less liquid because of that. But um, what do you tell these people that are concerned about a lack of liquidity around the alt space? Uh, what can they they still gain by by investing in alts? Why should they consider alts? Well, I think it's a very important uh, question that focuses on the liability side of the balance sheet. So uh, everybody's got a pile of capital uh, to invest if they're coming to it to an RIA or some other intermediary. But then you've got to have a discussion with them about uh, what are their expectations? And if they're 35 years old and saving for retirement, that might not happen for another 20 or 30 years. Liquidity is not a page one risk. Uh, mm -hmm. If it's for college and that child is uh, two months old, liquidity is not a page one risk. If the child is 12 or 14, maybe liquidity is sort of a, a medium term risk. So unless you understand the duration of the call back on that capital, it's very hard to make asset allocation decisions and those decisions should not be made in isolation. But back to my earlier example, that if somebody is in uh, their early 30s for retirement, liquidity is not a page one risk. So they should not be worrying about uh, liquidity. But I think we as an industry oftentimes uh, play into what the end client wants, which is exposure to an asset class with liquidity semi on demand. I thought I want it next day or maybe quarterly in an interval fund, but I need liquidity versus to say, maybe you don't. And maybe if you're in a fund that you don't have liquidity, you may find your goals are better reached uh, and you're not compromising any performance. Because the moment you have a fund that's got to go to liquidity on demand or over some period of time, you've got to be selling some of the underlying assets to do that. Right. So I think we as an industry, I think you do a far better job of explaining why liquidity is not important and, uh, and invest with confidence. And, and I saw something that Morningstar had done, which had looked at the delta between what the fund earned, uh, and this is in the 40X space, versus what the average shareholder earned. In every single case that they looked at liquid alts, public equity and public debt, every case uh, the investor was leaving 50 to 150 basis points annually on the table by tacking in and out. The target date funds, which is, uh, I assume you mostly have US listeners, this is where we put every two weeks our paycheck gets clipped and we put uh, some portion of our salary to target date funds. The average investor is doing better than the sticker of the prospectus because we're dollar cost averaging in on a regular basis. And, and if somebody on CNBC or Bloomberg says something that uh, bank failures or uh, debt ceiling problems, we're not going to go. We're, that's sort of left brain. So I think time has shown that if we can be long-term investors, we do much better. But I think we're taking complex strategies, putting them into semi or next day liquidity vehicles when they're not meant to be in there in the first place. So I think we've got to be very careful about that liquidity promise and whether or not it's really helping or hurting the end investor.
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about volatility? And, you know, we've talked kind of about diversifying the portfolio, even if it is the 60-40 portfolio within those buckets, um, within those tranches of allocation, you know, maybe moving more towards the private space to gain more alpha and perhaps holding that longer term, uh, depending on your investment horizon. But we didn't talk yet about about volatility. And I believe that you do have lower volatility or lack of correlation when you incorporate some of these alts. Yeah, well, if you want the other side of that argument, maybe you can get Cliff Asnes on next, Amelia, uh-huh. because he's been very, very vocal and has even called this volatility laundering. And uh, and I think you know, Cliff Asnes is a hell of a lot smarter than I am, very smart investor, so who am I to take the other side of that? But, but a couple of observations, uh, and I think it's a very valid point to bring up. Uh, equity risk premium is equity risk premium, full stop. I can get it in the public flavor or the private flavor and should it be any different public versus private? Uh, so that would argue, well, it's just price smoothing and uh, and eventually these prices uh, meet as one. And I, But I think it's more complicated than that. And, and I'm a big consumer of Howard Marks's memo. He's a very thoughtful writer at Oak Tree. And, uh, and he took an interesting take on this where he talked about the difference between an owner of an asset versus the trader of an asset. And he looked at the public equity markets going back several decades ago. The average holding period was many, many years. And now today it's a handful of months. So if we go out and and buy an index or buy a particular stock in a company, we're not acting as owners. We think we're going to buy it at a certain price and be able to sell it to somebody later at a higher price. It's really a transactional trading move. Right. And he compared that to private equity because Oak Tree's in the business of buying companies too, maybe more on the distressed side. But there you have a very concentrated set of owners. You have a seat on the governance table. You have control over how and when money gets invested. You have control over when that asset gets liquidated as well. Mm-hmm. So I think the behavioral characteristics of an owner should theoretically, I think all things being equal, drive a different price. Uh, now, this, uh, the, the marks in private equity have been in the news, and maybe rightfully so. It's something worth discussing. Last year, the all-country world index drew down 20%, and the proxy for private equity is flat. So why should it be 2,000 basis points of difference? And, and, uh, and I think some of it is uh, hallmark of dispersion, which we talked about before. But I think some of it comes back to this debate about who is right, and I think the answer lies somewhere uh, in the middle. I don't think it's so extreme to call it volatility laundering. And I mm-hmm. think this concept of an owner of an asset versus the trader of an asset acting and behaving in a very different way is something worth taking into consideration as well. So you've also discussed um, previously the portfolio of the, the future. And it seemed to me that you had highlighted that operational risk is is important. Can you kind of describe that portfolio of the future? Um, uh, yeah, so there were a couple of uh, hallmarks in there, and some of them we've already talked about around diversification, uh, less liquid, because that's where the value is. And maybe I'll just uh, stop uh, there for a quick second, Amelia. Uh, I think it was Hamilton Lane did a very interesting study on the public versus the private markets. And they looked in North America for every single company, public or private, that they could get data on. And the threshold was in excess of $100 million of revenues. And I think they looked at something, might have been 20,000 companies they found data on. 87% of those companies were private companies, 13% public. So I think rather than talk about the illiquidity premium and the complexity premium, 
I think it's a much easier and straightforward conversation to say the home of capital formation and value creation is in the private markets full stop. And maybe just to hammer that point home a little bit more uh, wholesomely, I think maybe hearkening back to I Connections, and I think this was uh, AJ Scaramucci, Anthony's son, I heard him on one of the panels, and he had a very interesting take on this. He looked at uh, or compared Amazon, which was a private company for less than two years in the 1990s, and they had to get public as quickly as possible because at that point in time, that's where all the capital formation was happening. And they went public, and if you bought one share of uh, Amazon at the IPO in the late uh, 1990-some-odd, you'd be up 110,000%. And he compared that to Uber, which went public just a handful of years ago, stayed private for well over a decade. Yeah, they were more mature. One, yeah, if you own one share of it today, you were down 25%. Uh, mm-hmm. And the sellers were just looking for liquidity. They weren't looking for any fresh capital. So, uh, so we talked about uh, being uh, more active in the less liquid markets in this portfolio for the future, because that... Uh, that's going to be a critical component. So it's not capturing any premium. It's more, do you want to be fishing in the pond where capital formation is happening? And and we now have, by last count, trillions of dollars of dry powder sitting on the sideline waiting to get into a deal. So there's mm-hmm. so much capital uh, happening uh, there that that is a market that we as individuals, if we're responsible for in retirement, we have to be playing in. Uh, but then we also, in Portfolio for the Future, talk about more active engagement. And what this means about being a more responsible investor, and we highlighted uh, the Engine One situation out of uh, out of Cal Sturz and and what went on there uh, in terms of getting board seats on Exxon Mobil, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that was a very interesting take on more active engagement. I think we're going to see more of that as we look to solve for climate. But then uh, maybe lastly, the point you just raised about uh, operational alpha. And this was written by Ashby Monk, who advises some of the most sophisticated sovereign wealth funds around the world. And by operational alpha, it can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Uh, he talked about how decisions are being made and uh, how do most of us in our personal and professional lives make decisions the same way we did yesterday, the same way we did last month, last uh, uh, year versus today. We have so much data in front of us, and we have to figure out a way of weaponizing that data and making data-driven decisions, not process-driven decisions. And the smart organizations are using all of this data, traditional and alternative data, to make more informed decisions around an investment process, around a governance process, uh, and truly world-class organizations that have adopted this stand a much better chance of being very successful versus organizations that are, are not doing it or not doing it well. Uh, yeah, that's so interesting. I worked for a firm before here that was very large into um, alternative alternative data. And that's how we advised um, hedge fund clients is mostly through this alternative data. And depending on what kind of data you're looking at in that alternative data space, it can be very expensive to get and also kind of difficult to get. So yeah, it's very interesting if you can integrate that quickly or before others, yeah, you definitely have an advantage. But I wonder too, if does operational alpha, I mean, companies, yeah, should be improving their decision-making process with data, especially I'm assuming all around AI as well, but, um, and how fast I'm seeing that being integrated, um, you know, into the banking sector or the finance world. But 
if we look for operational alpha, does that necessarily mean that kind of these investments are starting to get crowded out? You know, you have to look for a different kind of alpha because it's it's getting too crowded. Is, is there any sense to that? Yeah, well, so there's a couple of things there. One, again, a point that Ashby made, which I like a lot, is uh, it also incorporates uh, the, a governance structure and a governance budget. And are you willing to hire the very best talent, allow them to succeed or fail, but but uh, allow them to operate in a way in which uh, they can re- really be fully functioning as opposed to trying to control their every move. And I think a lot of boards say the right thing, but are they truly in a position to delegate governance uh, full stop? Uh, that can uh, that can sometimes be a challenge, but but in terms of uh, all of this alt data out there, which is measured in zettabytes, which I think is a one with twenty eight zeros after it, it's a massive massive number uh, compared to just an individual byte, uh, and and what this means around the future of alternative investments, I think it's still early days. Uh, we now have uh, a generative AI, ChatGPT is an example that uh, right. is here to absorb and synthesize this data, some for the good, maybe some for, uh, for, for the less good. But if you think about alpha, where do you find alpha? You find it in pockets of huge inefficiencies. And if you look at the public, uh, I mentioned the public equity market, but look at even the private equity markets, that space has gotten hugely efficient. There's not, uh, there's very few deals in North America in the buyout space that are not being done under some form of auction. The asymmetric advantage is not what it once was. There are a lot of GPs and a lot of funds competing with one another. And while there's still alpha to be made there, that space has gotten very, very efficient, which sounds more like beta than alpha. Right. If you look at this old data space, it is newly developing. How we're going to use it, to what degree, what is regulatory, uh, uh, ready and not. the uh, I think the SEC and other global regulators are going to be probably laggards in this as opposed to leaders. And they, they are going to be making judgments in 2026 on decisions we're making today on the deployment of this old data. So the premium on being very, very thoughtful when we don't have a national definition of privacy, uh, this data can sometimes violate uh, ethical principles as well. So we've got to be very, very careful. But I think we can find ways of improving an investment process that now has not only a CHI or a CFA, a trained analyst, there also might be a scientist from NASA and somebody that used to work at Apple, somebody else that used to work at Google that are not trained fiduciaries and uh, how they're utilizing this data. So we, as, as trained analysts, and we respecting the fiduciary standard for an end client, have got to embrace some of these tools, but recognize uh, that uh, we're holding uh, something in our hands that's very, very new and how it's going to be utilized is something that's going to be up to us as individual professionals to figure out. And we've got to do it very thoughtfully and very carefully. Right. It's a fast moving, it's rapidly moving, uh, rapidly evolving. I wonder what this means. Well, and I don't know if you... Yeah. Well, I was just going to follow up. I don't know if you played with ChatGPT at all. I've I've played with a little bit myself and... Yeah, and it's amazing how powerful it can be at some things. But then I asked it to write my bio and it did not do, uh, it, it got the Kaya part right, but the rest of it kind of had a lot of near misses. But then I asked it to write a congratulatory letter to uh, Kaya level two passers of our exam, which is the level for membership. And uh, and it was shockingly on point uh, to that oh, degree. So, uh, so it's, uh, it's going to wow. be very so are interesting. Are you going to use the letter? <laughs> Are you going to use that? Oh, I, 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 if I do, I'll have to do it with the right uh, disclaimer. But it, uh, yeah. but it's, it's interesting to see how this has evolved. 
just in a short yeah, period of time. Yeah, it is interesting. I think because it's so rapidly evolving and you kind of need, you know, we discussed more sophisticated tools, um, more sophisticated people, meaning outside of the traditional analyst role to, to help out, uh, to analyze this data and to make it help make investment decisions. Um, where does that leave the individual investor? Because we started at the beginning mentioning the democratization of alts. And did you mean by that, you know, incorporating more individual or retail investors or how are they going to kind of manage the complexities of, of the alt space? Uh, it's, it's, uh, if we could solve for that, I think you and I would get the Nobel uh, Prize for right. Peace and Justice and everything else in between. So I think that 40-some-odd uh, years ago, for unintended purposes, the Tax Act of 1980 had this provision 401k in it. It was never meant to be uh, a, a redirect of the retirement promise, but some smarter actuary saw this and said, hey, we could create a retirement plan out of this and created it for a consulting firm, I believe. And all of a sudden, corporate America said, wait a minute, I can get this liability off my balance sheet. I don't have to fund for this. I don't have to take longevity risk uh, when demographics are moving against me. And they dove headfirst in. And now where we sit today is uh, if I'm an individual uh, like myself that do not have a defined benefit plan, I now have six, eight or 10 pedestrian options around a mutual fund structure. Uh, so it's not even an interval fund, much less an opportunity to get alternative investments in there. And then I've got to manage investment risk, longevity risk. I've got to be thinking about uh, things like uh, debt ceiling uh, discussions uh, right. with the US government and interest rates. And, 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 and if I get this wrong, there's nobody to turn to. I'm going to open up my bail box when I'm 75 years old and the last check's going to be in there. There's no money left. And who do I go and see about that? Nobody. Compared to the defined benefit structure, somebody else took all that risk on and they have the ability to invest across all these asset classes. So somebody quite simply could say, and I heard one of the big PE shops say this, well, that's unfair. Let's give uh, Bill and Amelia access to all this stuff the big pension plan had access to. Okay, who's going to do the due diligence for us? Who's going to do the manager selection for us? Who's going to do the asset allocation for us? Well, you'll figure it out. There's no way we're going to figure it out. There's no way we're going to figure it out and get it right. And maybe you and I have a fighting chance because we've grown up in this industry to some degree. But what about the masses of very smart uh, teachers, firefighters, and maybe the firefighters have a defined benefit plan, but there's, yeah. there's plenty of folks that don't. And how are they going to fend for themselves? So, so we've got to figure out ways of, of greater transparency, greater education. I just get back from, uh, from a week in South America and in countries like uh, Chile, they have a, a, and I think this is also true in Colombia, they have more of a, a, an Australian super fund focus where okay. instead of taking every two weeks, putting my money into six or seven relatively uninteresting options in a 40-act structure, that money is commingled and managed like a big institutional fund where that fund itself is doing the manager selection. I think that that's an interesting model, that Australian model for us to think about here in the U.S., because now you've got institutional buying power, institutional due diligence. And how we get from here to there, I don't know. But that's a model I've seen uh, a bit over the last couple of years around democratization. I think we do well to uh, try to figure out a way of embracing that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's tough uh, out there for the individual investor. 
what about um, does tokenization come into this at all? Kind of making things that are illiquid more more liquid. Maybe that would be helpful to you know try to have greater access to these. Yeah, so I I I find this this part of the market fascinating. It's also very very new. Uh, Two firms, uh, that I, yeah. So, so KKR as an example came out with a, a very typical uh, private fund offering, Cayman-based fund with feeder funds attached to it uh, late last year, and one of these feeder funds is on the blockchain. And what I find so very interesting about that is uh, it's a private fund, so it's not available for the masses. But this could be an interesting test drive where. The uh, the reference asset is the NAV of the Cayman fund. It's no different than that. But if I want liquidity, I've got to find somebody else in the black blockchain that's willing to uh, to work with me on the other side of that trade. If we don't like the price, uh, transaction never happens. So it's not like an interval fund where the fund has got to raise liquidity, and if they run into a problem, they have to gate the fund. So I I think this could be very interesting. And if I compare that to the Buttonwood Tree Agreement back in the Wall Street days in the 1700s, whenever that was, you basically had the creation of, uh, of a public market and a specialist system for really illiquid securities. Back then was a, was a public company, if you owned 100 shares of IBM, did you own something that was, uh, uh, that was liquid? No, but we created a structure around it. And that structure involved uh, T plus five days or maybe even more to settle it and all sorts of intermediary, intermediaries. Some of an opaque system, you didn't know who was on the other side, trades could fail. But today, if we could use uh, some of this blockchain technology across distributed ledger, you could tokenize virtually any asset and create almost a public market type proxy for it. And if I wanted to merge some of these things together, Amelia, that if I could take late stage VC as an example, and put it on the blockchain. I would think that your goal would be to stay with these investments for the long term. But if you want it out, I could go and find you in the blockchain. I want in, you want out. We find a fair price, we transact, and uh, and off we go. So I think that this type of technology, I think bears watching. I think when we talk about Bitcoin and ETH, I think the tendency is to talk about the cryptocurrency because people sort of like the fluctuation, the volatility, and the debate. I think we should spend more time thinking about the plumbing underneath it, that blockchain. I think that that is, is something that could potentially be a game changer. Yeah, that, that is interesting because we mentioned, talked earlier about uh, illiquidity or lack of liquidity in a portfolio. So maybe this is a way uh, that, you know, could benefit people who are concerned about that as well. So how does... Um, Kaya stay up to date and relevant on all of this in terms of your education? Because it seems like a lot to stay on top of. Uh, how do you guys manage to continue to educate people up to, you know? Yeah, to yeah, yeah. yeah, so I uh, I uh, have been in this industry now to some degree. This Kaya uh, uh, platform has said very best job I've had, but very different than any job I've ever had. But I, I got out of college over 40 years ago. And I look at that span of time and uh, and things change glacially early on in my career. Uh, and and I think that was true for probably 30 of the 40 years I've been in. But I think post the GFC and then more as we moved in toward uh, uh, tokenization of digital assets, the evasion of alt data, uh, democratization, these trends are happening very, very rapidly. And, uh, and it is uh, it makes our job more difficult because we've got to be sort of on the leading edge, not on the bleeding edge. 
some right. of the basic underpinnings of some of these strategies don't change regularly, but we've got to make sure we kind of keep an eye on the ball as to where things are going. And uh, we're fortunate in that we've developed relationships with some of the most sophisticated investors around the world. They help inform our curriculum on a regular basis. And having gone through the Kaya curriculum myself, I'm a pretty new member. I just passed level two and became a Kaya member in March of 2022, just a year ago. So an old dog can learn a new trick. Thank you. You can send yourself the chat GPT letter. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, I should. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Good point. Uh, but, uh, but having gone through it, one of the things I really loved about the program as a candidate, not the CEO of Kaya, is that level two has, uh, we rotate these in and out, but it's a series, series of these uh, uh, core topics that are required reading, we test upon them. And they change on a semi-regular basis, but this was a year ago, and one of these core readings was on stable coins, one of, was on impact investing, one was on uh, a permissioned uh, blockchain, and, it's, I, and then I think another one was a, uh, an executive guide to AI, artificial intelligence, not alternative investments. Uh, so it, it just made me all the more rounded as a, as a professional, as a candidate, and hopefully as a CEO of Kaya. So, so the question you asked is an important one. I would say the short answer is it's not easy, but we've got to try to get it as, as right as we can. And we don't have to be right in, uh, in absolute real time. We've got to make sure the relevancy of our curriculum and what it means to the candidate, the member, and the consumer of, of the material and ultimately the end client who should be benefiting from it. Uh, we've got to make sure we're doing it right. Yeah. So, and that's so interesting and all the professionals who advise to that must be kind of a fun role for them as well. It must be very interesting. It, it um, is. I spent a good chunk of my time on an airplane. I just got back from, uh, I said, uh, from South America. I was in the Middle East a few weeks before then, both in UAE and Riyadh and and uh, the access, when you want to come in and talk about transparency and education, I've never been turned out. Everybody will take that meeting. Uh, so it's yeah. just, it's, it's a great and important uh, role that I play. That is, no, that, that is so important. So we're just wrapping up here. We're over a little bit over a half an hour and I don't want to take too much of your time, but I did want to ask you just, what do you think on just a personal level, the most interesting aspect of, of uh, alternative investing is? Well, I think the uh, I've been in this, this industry for a long time. I love working in and around the capital markets. Uh, I learn something new every single day. Yeah. And if I think about uh, the private markets, uh, what I find so very interesting is what's going on in early stage VC. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the tail end of the baby boomers. We've got, uh, you know, certainly uh, healthcare is in the minds of so many. We're living longer. Uh, the uh, the ability to to uh, cure uh, the physical ailments of society is going to be found in early stage VC. We've got climate uh, a move toward renewable energy as a big uh, push too. I think a lot of the answers are going to require early and sustained investment, tremendous infrastructure needs. So I think we are in a place that is so relevant to the future of this world, the future of our economy that. Uh, uh, and I think alternatives uh, plays a very big role in that. And I think uh, being part of this mix, being part of the education, being part of the dialogue, I think it, uh, the, the level of responsibility it puts on us is enormous. Right. Uh, we embrace that role and we've got to leave with transparency and uh, better outcomes with the end investor.
Yeah, great. Well, it sounds like it's going to continue to grow. And so is Kaya in relation to that and all the people who um, are going to be passing, taking and passing those exams, hopefully. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being here today. I enjoyed the conversation. Oh, we will have all the information. Um, you can find Bill and Kaya um, Association in the, the show notes, and you can find out more about Diamond Standard as well in the show notes. Thank you. Materials presented are not intended to be a recommendation, solicitation, or offer to buy or sell any securities, financial instruments, investments, or to participate in any particular investment strategy. The content and opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a guarantee of future results, performance, or outcomes. Before acting on any information or content presented herein, you should consult with a qualified financial professional, tax advisor, or legal counsel to determine the suitability, risks, and potential rewards of any investment or financial strategy for your individual circumstances, financial situation, and risk tolerance.